What's up, everybody? Cena here. Have you been dying to see us live? Then get pumped. Because the last podcast network is doing a country jamboree at the Ryman Auditorium in Nashville on June 18th. We'll have all your favorite LPN family out and performing live, including last podcast on the left, page seven, Wizard and the Bruiser, No Dogs in Space, Brighter Side, Justin and I, of course, on Fraudsters, Someplace Underneath, The Story Must Be Told, and more. Tickets are available now. And again, that's the Ryman Auditorium, June 18th in Nashville, Tennessee, for the last podcast network country jamboree. Let's go. This summer, raised in the urban centers of Japan, the Mississippi Delta, the gritty streets of Brooklyn, Detroit, and generally also from Jamaica, plus India and Africa. One man, armed with swords, guitars, and a kaleidoscope of accents. Steven Seagal is... The Razor. <laughs> That's from the Mark for Death soundtrack. That's how many times I've seen Mark for Death. I remember that song. <laughs> Amazing. Welcome back to Fraudsters. I'm Cena Gazzabee at Cena Now on all social media at Fraudsters LPN if you want to reach out to us. Justin Williams is here with us at Justin underscore Williams underscore comedy on Instagram. You can find him on Facebook. Send him an email. He'll come to your house. All right, Justin, last week we left off in the early 90s. Gangster rap was just about to take over. People weren't really talking about climate change. I think they called it global warming. I think everyone thought about the hole in the ozone layer. Wall Street yeah. was starting to pop off. Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed is good. Grunge music was all the rage. I remember listening. I think uh, Use Your Illusion from uh, GNR was the big album. What else was happening in the 90s, Justin? Uh, a lot of good stuff. Uh, you know, in the you know, if you talk about like 1991, OJ Simpson is just a wonderfully funny spokesman for Hertz Rent-A-Car. Absolutely. And comic relief in the Naked Gun films. Huge success. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Michael Jackson is just a completely normal member of society. Michael Jackson. <laughs> An upstanding member, loves to donate to children's charities. All right, so Steven Seagal, though, <laughs> was getting repeatedly lambasted by journalists. He was called out for changing his name, being a terror to women, making up stories about himself or taking other people's stories and claiming them as his own. Notably, though, he did that with vets and ex-CIA agents, which is, again, the stolen valor that we really wanted to touch on when it came 
to Steven Seagal. I really thought on this show we would do Stolen Valor in the form of those like videos you see on TikTok where someone's wearing fatigues and they're trying to get like a loan from like some sort of military office or they're trying to like gain some sort of favor. But no, no, it's a Hollywood movie star that didn't need to have Stolen Valor, but decided to do it anyways. He also had those Hollywood mob connections and, and loved to use them to harass journalists. Also in the early 90s, Steven Seagal was doing incredibly well. Continuing on the trend set with Above the Law, Seagal's next few movies were basically synonyms of the same title. Hard to Kill, Marked for Death, Out for Justice, (laughs) all reviewed poorly by critics, yet grossed millions. I wish more of you would just hate our show and give us more money. (laughs) Justin, can you read a few of the reviews for us from his movies? Let's start with this one from the Northwest Herald about uh, Hard to Kill. Above all else, the action in Hard to Kill is dull, just one fight scene after another. None is well choreographed, and all invariably end with Storm breaking one of his opponent's bones. (laughs) The only suspense lies in which bone he will break next. A wrist? (laughs) An ankle? A femur, perhaps? That's not much fun for anyone, except possibly orthopedic surgeons imagining how much money they'd make if all cops were like this guy. Here's one from the Chicago Tribune about Marked for Death. Steven Seagal goes after the bad guys in this racist and misogynistic Marked for Death. Under Siege, though, got better reviews. This is from the Minneapolis Star Tribune. As wild as the premise is, the movie is almost guiltily enjoyable. To accept the movie, you must buy the notion that on the pretext of giving the Missouri's captain a surprise birthday party, the ship's executive officer would have a lot of caterers, musicians, and a topless dancer flown to the ship by a helicopter. Once there, the interlopers get everyone drunk and then start murdering. Yeah, I hate that reviewer. He's uh, always very critical of my favorite movies. Regardless, these movies made millions, though, people. Alan Richmond's critical article came out in 1991, and John Connolly's spy mag spread was published in June of 93. Later, in February of 94, Seagal made his directorial... Oh, God, I'm going to vomit. Directorial... Directorial debut in On Deadly Ground. Listen to this budget. The budget for his first directorial debut, okay? $50 million. This is, this, you, if there's an ever been a better definition of failing up, and like, it's this. <laughs> it's one thing to give the guy blockbuster movies to act in. It's another to let him helm an entire movie. People are always up in arms about cancel culture, but this is how it used to be, folks. Someone would repeatedly be exposed as a fraud, an abuser, even as an attempted murderer, and they got rewarded with dozens of millions of dollars. Yeah, but this isn't something that's even in the past. I mean, we just watched Chris Rock uh, get slapped by Will Smith and then Will Smith accept Best Actor at the same award ceremony. (laughs) But he's no longer allowed to attend the Oscars for 10 years. Oh, no. Justice has been served. Yeah, no, for real. (laughs) Seagal co-wrote, starred in, and directed on Deadly Ground in 1994. Hey, isn't this the movie that uh, he was promoting on the David 
David Letterman clip? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, obviously, no surprise, the movie leans heavily on native appropriation. Mostly jackets made of felt with cuts under the arms to give it, like, like fringe. A little fringe. that's Native American. A little, a little shake, American. a little texture, a little shimmy. And a piece of turquoise, and then it's Native American, according to Hollywood. Ancient Native Americans. Jesus. <laughs> Seagal plays Forrest Taft, firefighter, blowout specialist, which is not a thing, not a hairdresser, and an ex-CIA operative, obviously. That was my old Twitter bio. Yeah, is that yeah, right? I'm, blowout a, bl- I'm a blowout blow- specialist, um, ex-CIA. <laughs> He's trying to <laughs> save the environment from big, bad oil. <laughs> the plot is extremely convoluted, per usual, so we won't try to explain it, but... You know, we're a research-based podcast, folks, and we normally do not use Wikipedia, but frankly, I'm not going to waste your time. Hazel's not going to waste her time. We're not going to waste any of our time trying to deconstruct on deadly ground, okay? So here's the synopsis from Wikipedia. Taft discovers the trap and barely manages to escape as Magruder sets off the explosives. (laughs) I can't believe that's where the parody comes from. He survives and is rescued by Masu, the daughter of Inuit tribe chief Siluk. <laughs> Taft receives care from Siluk's tribe. At the behest of Siluk, he undergoes a vision quest <laughs> in which he sees the full truth and vows to make amends for his part in Agus's crimes. They, the Agus security team, Track him to Saluk's village, and when the tribe refuses to cooperate, a confrontation ensues. I'm sure some bones got broken there. Ending with Magruder fatally shooting Saluk. Taft returns in time to have one last talk with Saluk before he succumbs to his wounds, vowing to avenge him and bring down Agus. And that's the plot to Dances with Wolves. I mean, (laughs) on deadly ground. What the fuck? All right, so we got a quick clip from this masterpiece. Maybe some ghost will stop all the cars from using gasoline. Maybe, maybe somehow some spirit will trip the big switch and all the technology that's been repressed for the last 70 years will suddenly be ours and it'll be a better place to live, a beautiful place. Maybe I should send my spirit guide over to Aegis One to stop it from going online so that Jennings can't fuck you and your people out of your land and your way of life forever. See, I love the spirit world and I love your father. But it doesn't matter right now. What really matters is the cold, hard reality of this world. And that's what we got to deal with. I didn't want to resort to violence. I don't have a choice. And I'm not taking any chances this time. Because I can't. I can't. <laughs> Who says they love the spirit world? Say, uh, only a person that has never tripped before. It's, it's like, and he only went there once. Yeah. He's just like, I love the spirit world. Like, you only went there once, bro. Spirit world is part know. of me. And your father. He was great. Like, <laughs> I got to know him in the last 30 minutes as part of plot exposition. But now I am one of your tribe. This is where I substantiate how I'm going to be violent for the next 90 minutes of this movie. <laughs> I think it's just like, what do, you, what do you think the spirit world is going to stop cars? That'd be awesome, though, if like a spirit came and just started like flipping over Cadillacs. All right, here's another clip where Steven Skull actually does help a Native American out. This is the man's man, and I'm the cupcake. Here we go, man. 
Put your hands up. Put your hands up. I just want to know, this is, a, this is a game my dad and I actually played with the hands on top of each other, and we called it uh, Noonba Kebab, which is kebab and bread. And it was a cute game, yeah. and we put our hands, and we try to slap it. But my father didn't punch me in the chest and the nose afterwards. <laughs> if I lost... Yes, but but you weren't, in fairness, you weren't drunkenly bullying a Native American at a bar. Yeah, that's that true. For, I, thought, I thought it was so cool that Steven Seagal was defending the Native man in this scene. I this remember is when true. I was, little, I was like, that's cool. That's cool. And he beats the man and he teaches him about how to be a better man as he repeatedly punches him in the sternum as hard as he can. You know, and we should be thanking Steven Seagal for helping bring and shine the light to indigenous people and directors and actors in the movie business. He really gave indigenous people a shot and brought them into the movie and brought them in inside the tent, gave them a seat at the table. None of that is true. Steven Seagal's Native American love interest in the movie, was her name was Joanne Chen, who is Chinese. Yeah. <sighs> you know, looking back at that clip, that you know, I was looking at I was like, because, you, you know, there's like theories about like Native Americans are the descendants of people that came over on the ice bridge, like some of them. So the, some of them could look Asian. But when I was looking at that clip, I'm like, that's an Asian lady. <laughs> that's not a... Uh, Native American lady. You don't want to be like wrong, but you're like, I'm totally sure that's an Asian lady that they just have. (laughs) But that's the old history in Hollywood. Native Americans never get Native American roles. It's always like an Italian with a tan. Yeah. They always just put a feather in somebody else's hair and say it's a Native American. It's funny if you think about like when Mel Brooks did Blazing Saddles and he was the, you know, Native American and stuff like that. Like that that joke is layered on on top, like on, on a different level because they just never used actual. Native Americans in any of these movies. I also like how many times this plot has been done. Like we already mentioned Dancing with Wolves, but like also like Fern Gully is out at the same time. Yeah. And that's the plot. And and then it was funny watching like Avatar like go back to this type of plot where it's like a white man spends time with the pure natives who care for the environment. Then they realize the error of the white man's ways and fight with the pure natives against the other whites. The natives were in trouble, so they called upon a pseudo-Italian man who's half-Asian to come and save them. The Native Americans of Chinese descent. (laughs) (laughs) All right. (laughs) The Native Americans. Hannah Lau. And even though, yet again, the movie had terrible reviews, the New York Times called him an 800-pound gorilla, and this is what they had to say about the movie. Awesomely incoherent. A mixture of poorly executed violence and dances with wolf-style astral musings. Yeah, the the film grossed. The film grossed $38.6 million in the United States and Canada and $78 million worldwide against the $50 million budget. Now, that's the production budget. We don't know what the print and advertising was as well. They could have possibly. Usually a good rule of thumb to use is it's usually matching the production budget, if not more. In some cases, it's usually double, but uh, depending on the type of movie. But in those days, I would say it was probably like, you know, the same. Remember, action movies do well worldwide because you don't have to like 
dub the whole thing. It's easier for people to tap into. And violence is the universal language. Let's be honest. The film was also hailed in China for its authentic cast. <laughs> this is this is true race hustling, people. Well, we are in the race hustler series. He is culturally appropriating for his own financial gain. Ooh, there it is. And Seagal becomes such a Hollywood staple going to the Oscars, making millions off his movies, that he was offered, ugh, I'm gonna, ugh, I'm sorry, ugh, I'm gonna vomit again, a hosting spot on SNL. And in case you forgot what decade we're in. <laughs> oh, Jesus, Jesus Hazel. This is, this is the <laughs> cultural points that we love to bring up. Another classic from Michael Bolton, whose iconic album, Time, Love, and Tenderness had just been released. And he was the musical guest. Now I see how this started. Oh my god, Michael Bolton's in blackface. <laughs> <laughs> All right, all right, all right, all right. Let's fucking cut it. Cut the fucking... Cut it, damn it. I will reclaim hosting privileges. Oh, Michael Lord. Bolton got all of the soul that Percy Sledge missed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now that you've heard his interviews are on City Hall and David Letterman, no one will be surprised to hear that it was an utter disaster when he hosted SNL. David Spade said Seagal just couldn't make fun of himself. Dana Carvey echoed that sentiment in this next clip. How yeah. is it that if you go online and you try to find the Steven Seagal uh, hosting? Rehearsing it. Saturday it's not Night on Live. there? It is not on there. We couldn't find it anywhere because I have looked for it. What happened with the Hans and Franz sketch? When he came in, we wrote it. We wrote it. We did it at Read Through. And all of it was them making fun of Steven. Like, right. Arnold is stronger than you. He could flick you with your little baby finger and you would fly across the room and land in your own baby poop. You know, it's all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Your little spindly arms and so your buttocks are like marshmallows. You're lucky we don't have a campfire here. <laughs> and he's just reading his lines and not really reacting to it. Right. Then it gets on the show. It's picked. Then on Thursday, we're just on the soundstage rehearsing it. And we go through it with the cue cards. He reads his lines, very serious. Then he just walks off. He's like 50 feet away in the 8H, the studio. No one's around. I go, we got to start again, Kevin. I'll go see what's going on. So I went up to him. I said, Stephen, are you okay? And he just didn't look at me. He's looking straight forward. He goes, quote, and I, this is a quote. I just wish Arnold was here so I could kick his fucking ass. <laughs> oh my so, God. so what does that mean? He didn't understand the sketch? Well, so we... I told him, I said, they're idiots. Right. Doesn't mean you're weaker than Arnold. These guys just worship Arnold. So we rewrote it. I don't know if he ever saw it. Maybe. You, you, you mean you couldn't explain to him that in the sketch, you guys love Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. So he couldn't make fun of himself. So we did the sketch, the sketch different so that he was, there's only one person stronger than Arnold and that's Steven Seagal. But, <laughs> but it doesn't work. I know. Well, six months later, <laughs> six months later, I run into Arnold at a restaurant in Santa Monica. He's got his whole gang with him. Right. He, he travels with an aunt. He's got a foot long cigar. He's leaning back. I go, Arnold, Steven Skull's on the show. He's saying, kick your fucking ass. I told him the whole story. Yeah. And Arnold just leans back and goes, 
Is that the fact? He <laughs> <laughs> started World War III with those two guys. Arnold's too smart. He owns 747s. And, you know, what are we going to do? Be like in fifth grade and try to wrestle? So that was Dana Carvey. And, you know, as a comedian, every comedian, I think, has this book. I don't know where I put it in the move. But Live from New York is a great book. And it's interviews with all the cast from SNL. And they kind of spill the tea on, you know, all the hosts they had and all the gossip that went in. There's a couple segments, and I was just thinking the other night, I was like, oh, my God, I'm sure they talked about Steven Seagal. So here's a few things that that folks said. Tim Meadows, the lead man. The biggest problem with Steven Seagal was that he would complain about jokes that he didn't get. So it was like, you can't explain something to somebody in German if they don't speak German. He just wasn't funny, and he was very critical of the cast and the writing staff. He didn't realize that you can't tell somebody they're stupid on Wednesday and expect them to continue writing for you on Saturday. This is David Spade. He didn't want to go along with what the plan was that week, and as a result, I think that was the first week that I heard talk about replacing the hosts and just doing a cast show. So SNL removed the episode from the archive. It is still on the Internet Archive. I mean, SNL's had some rough shows. This is the worst show. I have ever, ever, ever seen SNL ever do. Yeah. Seagal was the same monotone bouncer type that he is in real life, and he's doing this in every sketch. Every sketch is him threatening or physically abusing the cast members or just like being violent, the threat of violence, being a tough guy, the threat of tough guy violence. Okay, so we're not going to watch a sketch because I, I, oh, I, we already watched the whole episode, and I don't want to repeat that for anybody because it was awful. So, I mean, God, I can only imagine what that monologue was like. <laughs> ask and you shall receive. Thank you. It's great to be here in New York, and it's great to be opening up Saturday Night Live. Most of you probably know me from my action adventure films, Above the Law, Hard to Kill, Mark for Death, stuff like that. My newest film, Out for Justice, which is number one in the nation right now. But my movies are more than just action. And I like to try to explore the mythical poet and the warrior that is all but vanished in modern society. The relationship between man and God. The struggle of the common man against politically corrupt systems. I hope you'll forgive me for being a little bit serious but it's important to me to let you know there's a lot more to Steven Seagal than the martial arts. Now, if you don't mind, I'd like to sing and play and hang around. Everybody was Kung Fu fight. Passes lightly. It was a little bit. All right. Even William Shatner was like, this is horrific. (laughs) (laughs) They just think of that idea on the can and they were just like, you know what? This will be a good way to open a national late night comedy show. It was smart, though. Try to get him to not talk anymore. Like, if you go back and look at the film, he's swaying. In ways that it's like he looks more nervous than me as like a like you know like a you know nightclub comic doing that game. Oh you God! Know? 
Like if I were swaying and moving that much, people would be very distracted. But Justin, he does seem to think that he is a wonderful musician. He did have confidence holding that guitar, though, right? Or at least, I mean, you know, he seemed to think he was. It helps when you have G.E. Smith's band backing you, too. Now, we're we're not going to go through everything that Seagal did in the 90s because this series is focused on the race hustling side of Seagal. But the basic highlights are that he entertained running for Senate. He runs like a bitch. Ah! He got divorced from Kelly LeBrock in 96. After he cheated on her, oh boy, with, drumroll please, I'm sure you'll all be able to guess, the nanny who he also got pregnant. Very Schwarzenegger-esque of him. And of course, he made a bunch of awful movies. And why don't we just watch one before we go to an ad break? (laughs) To those he pursued, he was known only as (laughs) the Glimmer Man. They'd seen shadows, then a glimmer. Then, he's always followed his own path and worked alone until now. Uh, Mr. Lovebeads, you're going to have to seek high enlightenment somewhere else. They don't see eye to eye. This guy is weird. Put up the gun. I can't fight. This is not the time I want to hear that. For a minute there, I forgot you told me you can't fight. It's against my religion, I'm a Buddhist. And I'm super bad. And they use different methods. Once in a should cry because, like, it cleanses the soul. If I need a cleansing, I have a brand muffin. But on this case... pray that we hurry and find this killer so I don't have to be with your crazy ass much longer. Opposites do attract. He's a little country. I'm a little bit rock and roll. Boy, Lethal Weapon really created a lot of work for a lot of people. They tried to throw together, this man is a seasoned Brooklyn detective. His partner is a chimpanzee that has escaped the Bronx Zoo. And together... He's a nine-to-five accountant. He's a canine with a passion for blood. Now they're going to fight crime together. back and it's the early aughts y2k turned out to be nonsense george bush is a garbage president miss cleo is the hottest thing that's happening in late night television at the moment and everyone is listening and serenading themselves with michael bolton on their first gen ipods (laughs) do not play michael bolton do not play michael bolton do not play michael bolton This isn't Michael Bolton. Oh, no. No. Put Michael Bolton back on. Put Michael Bolton back on. No matter what tomorrow brings. I want to die. This is awful. Turn this off. 
you know what? This is decently produced out. Like they are masking. It's not good, but they are masking up a lot of horror. So that definitely wasn't Michael Bolton. That was that was awful. Hazel, what what did you do? What was this? That was payback for having to listen to Seagal's first album, Songs from the Crystal Cave. That song was called uh, Girl, It's All Right. If you know anything about Steven Seagal, it's not all right. It's not all right at all. The History Channel actually did a segment on his guitar collection. But swords aren't his only passion. He also has a collection of almost 300 guitars. Many of these instruments were hard to find. I collect guitars because I'm a serious player and I've been playing since I was a child. (laughs) And I love guitar and I play all kinds of different music. Seagal uses his collection in the studio and on stage. I like how in addition to swords, he has a collection of guitars. (laughs) The swords weren't enough. He's got to get the musical swords out. Justin, can you describe the album cover of songs from Crystal Cave? He's just, it's a lot of influences. Like, I feel like there, he has a turquoise ring, yep. which is supposed to be kind of Native American, I believe. But then yep. he has some beads and sort of a pseudo he loves the spirit Asian-looking world. shirt on. He loves the spirit world and your father. He's sort of just staring intently with the neck of his guitar going across. It's just like, it's, you know, it's just, it's exhausting to look at. That's what I'll say. It's it's someone who really takes themselves like super seriously and wants the world to take them seriously as like a musician. Right? What do you think the Crystal Cave is though? Songs from the Crystal. Do you think he went and like ate shrooms in there or something, or like did peyote in a in a cave somewhere? I don't know. I don't know what the Crystal. Steve Seagal. I don't know which ethnicities uh, that's supposed to be. <laughs> I don't know whether that's a Japanese cave. Is that an Italian cave? Is it a Native American cave? I'm, I guarantee it's a black cave. Definitely not a Jewish cave. I'll tell you that much. It's not it's a Jewish de- cave. I don't know what, what, what crystal, whose crystal is it? Yeah. We're going to find out. Uh, believe it or not, this album was reviewed flatteringly by some. Steve Hotchman of the LA Times wrote a review called, quote, This art's vocal, not martial. I, what? Ugh. That. Terrible title doesn't lend it much credit, but we, you know, we continue on here. A CD arrived recently with nothing identifying the artist or any of the credits information. Just song titles and a note from a publicist that the name of the performer would come as a surprise. Oh, that's a definite red flag there. Go on, Justin. It was a male singer with a strong, understated voice in the realm of Jack Johnson, but Nightmare. with more energy. The songwriting was accomplished and the production credible, incorporating singer-songwriter elements, dance hall, and Indian instrumentation. One song featured a harmonica solo sounding uncannily like Stevie Wonder. So who is this mystery man? A veteran taking off in a new direction? A former teen popper trying to resurrect a career? The publicist's answer? Steven Seagal. Well, Stevie Wonder is in fact credited on the album, which is convenient because he just he didn't use the singing part of Stevie Wonder. He used the harmonica. He goes on to write that Seagal was worried that his public image might work against him. Of course, you know, his public image as an actor, you don't want to get painted into a corner. But Seagal is acutely aware of the baggage he carries. Oh my God. He's seen how credibility issues have dogged Don Johnson, Bruce Willis, Russell Crowe, Minnie Driver, and other actors who have made albums. 
Yes, it's why Bruce Willis never got to do a blues album. It's why Eddie Murphy's first album wasn't produced by Rick James and Stevie Wonder. It's why the Blues Brothers didn't become an actual touring musical <laughs> act. You know, we, we've really got to stop discriminating against actors trying to get into music. That's why Childish Gambino has no top albums. This poor, poor actor. <laughs> Jamie Foxx. The, the music industry is like, no, Jamie, you can't make music. You know, it's like uh, Ariana Grande, Jennifer Lopez. I mean, Seagal would probably claim that they featured J-Lo on the tambourine on his album. <laughs> Well, I think we're being too hard on him, though. The album was featured on some reggae-inspired tunes. One review quotes him as saying, Whoa! His first CD, 2004, Songs from the Crystal Cave, was a world effort influenced by Jamaican music. He didn't... <laughs> <laughs> I can't do that. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's tough to do it the whole time. I, I tried. I go back to Jamaica some 30-odd years. So I've played with the Marley's, Toots, and the Maytals, and Jimmy Cliff. I play with everybody way back, and I moved along with different occasions in Jamaican music. <laughs> what? <laughs> First reggae, raga, dance hall, and all that. I just kept a relationship with Jamaica. He's uh, Jamaican now, everybody. He's definitely Jamaican. I can't believe we actually went all the way back. He's now Jamaican. I just like he's making all these trips to Japan and Jamaica, like very close countries. Just incredible the arrogance that someone could try to take on the Jamaican identity like this. Uh, let's hear another track. Oh, I just it's I can't believe I complained about Michael Bolton. Let's uh, let's hear another track from Songs from a Crystal Cave. Oh no! <laughs> this is on the same album? Yes, I. No! You see me, I say, my girl, Lollipop. I cannot. I'm dead. I'm dead. You are as sweet as candy. You are my sugar dandy. No. This is not real. I'm dead. I'm dead. Stop this right now. What? Uh, who is? Who is on? Who is? Who is the? Is that? Sound? Who sounded like Sizzler? Maybe Sizzler. Well, who is that? We have to. I have to find out now. That is the worst uh, song that they could have ended Mark for Death with. Like after he breaks every Jamaican <laughs> arm. There's actually a funny clip of Arsenio Hall pointing out how racist the movie is. And when Seagal denies it, Arsenio plays a clip of the movie, and the clip is just caricatures of Jamaican gangs getting beat up by Seagal. And there were people protesting. Because I guess it showed a negative image um, yeah. of, of those people. And, and do you worry about that kind of stuff? Sure. I mean, I'm the only white guy in the movie, you know, mm-hmm. uh, which is an interesting he thing. He admitted to being uh, white there. I, I, it was very important to me to not give anybody an impression that we thought that all Jamaicans are bad or all blacks are bad in, in any way, shape, or form. In fact, my best friend in the film, uh, Keith David, is, you know, black. And... Um, we tried in a couple of areas to really kind of cover the fact that we love Jamaica and we love Jamaicans and the Rastafarians are, you know, an interesting religious people in general. And, I, and in writing this, I, I several times tried to really make that come out so that we wouldn't go the wrong way. And this is just a small sect 
of, of the Jamaican community. That's right. But they're they bad. You say they yeah. bad? Yeah. So uh, let's take a look at it. You want some blow? Yeah, I want some blow. Put your hands where I can see them. I'm going to blow your head off. Uh, cool now. Keep a cool head, man. Stem here. Right there, right there. Yeah, Mark for Death is where, you know, he just goes around breaking all the Jamaicans' arms because it's the Jamaican voodoo posses are like the bad guys in that one. And now he's just like, I'm doing reggae. It's just very, it's very distressing, like all of this. Do you think that was his idea? He just went back to his film. He goes, well, I did a movie with Jamaicans one time, so I'll just, now I'll just do a reggae. Also, I like all these songs, the way they structure it to where he doesn't have to do anything. It's like it's like Aikido, actually. It right? really is. Like They put yeah. all the reggae around him, and then they just have him do like four words in the hook to make it his song. Ooh. And he's not really necessarily playing any of the instruments. So it's like everybody's doing everything for him, but it's just his face on the album cover, you know? Oh, my lollipop. I have a long relationship to Jamaica that hasn't been documented anywhere. Well, it's good that he didn't do a, another album after that. Oh, oh no, he did. He did, though. What? We haven't even gotten there yet. Yeah, let me just play one song. Just one song. Oh, Hazel. Just one. Stop it. <laughs> you know, my favorite kind of blues is the colorblind blues because <laughs> I grew up with a lot of people that were colorblind. And they didn't see race. They also didn't see red or green or couldn't really tell the difference. <laughs> Let me tell you, if there's any genre of music that's going to endorse colorblindness, it's the blues that was born out of the harsh segregation <laughs> of the Jim Crow Mississippi Delta. <laughs> My favorite song is a guy on a plantation being like, ain't no black, ain't no white. <laughs> Shut up, Toby. It's also sounded like, uh, you know, those guys at the subway that just have like the speaker playing <laughs> all the other instruments. And then they're just like the guys they're strumming like one chord on the guitar and singing. <laughs> sounded like that. This is kind of, it's like he's floundering now though, right? This is like a mental breakdown where he, now he's changing ethnicity. So he had like this kind of solid Asian thing, right? This is and 2006. Now he's, now he's switching every two years now. Yeah, 2006. This is not. This is not ancient history. This is not the 90s. The, uh, people were wise enough to not do something like this. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll hear from a jazz guitar professor who sheds a little light on Seagal's musical prowess. It's going to be a little upsetting for some because it seems like Seagal is not as awful as we thought. We reached out to a handful of experts in jazz and blues, one of whom was Bobby Ferrazza, a jazz guitar professor at the renowned music conservatory at Oberlin College in Ohio. 
He graciously talked to us for 30 minutes, and we asked him to watch some of Seagal's live performances. This is him playing a song called Dust My Broom. We're just going to take a little break from that. I've got another one for you, but maybe we can just get your take on his playing. We would be curious to hear from a professional. Yeah, he's, you know, you can tell he's really passionate about the blues and that he's, you know, he can, he, he can play. He's not just messing around. I mean, he's, I was surprised that, that when, when I, I first heard it, that, that, that he was that good a player. He, he's, um, he's not a. He's not a person without talent, you know. Mm-hmm. He, in other words, he doesn't s- sound like somebody who is new to, you know, brand new to it, mm-hmm. or is um, sort of. He, he's got some natural musical talent, and he's developed it. So, how would you weigh it against, like I, I say, the claim? Like, how would you rate the the level of playing there versus the claim that you know, like um, legends like BB King or you know Howlin' Wolf said that they had never heard a white boy play guitar that good. Did they really say that? I mean, I, that is Steve, Steven Seagal's claim is that the greatest bluesman of all time said that he is the the greatest white guitar player they've ever heard. And that he's essentially an honorary black person because of his 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 immense talent at the blues. Yeah, that's that sounds like a lot. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that sounds that sounds I mean, I don't know why anyone would feel like they would have to say something like that, really. I mean, but I mean, because there's, you know, and I hate to even get into, you know, I mean, music and all art is not a race. So like the, any, the, any, anytime we talk about the best of something is that's really unfortunate. But but also, um, you know, I can understand somebody trying to promote their record or something. Yeah. But that would that that sounds like um, it's well, it's a big claim. So, not for the first time in this series, we must reluctantly admit that Seagal might actually have some talent. (laughs) But anyone could watch a bunch of YouTube videos and learn how to play the guitar, okay? Anyone could do that. Anyone. But this series isn't about proving that Steven Seagal is untalented, Awful musician, bad at a keto, you know? Justin, tell us, what what is this series about? This series is about race hustlers, people that appropriate racial or ethnic identities as a way to advance their own personal economic interests, which is the point is to say that, you know, even if Steven Seagal is decent at guitar, he doesn't have to start talking like an extra in Django Unchained and claiming Detroit and the blues and all these things to do that. Now, if if the series were about Steven Seagal being untalented, we would probably go after his claims of being a great writer. <laughs> Uh, do you write a lot? 
Yeah, I run a lot. That's the one thing that I love to do the most. It's the one thing that I think I do best, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we agree. Except for the We blues, absolutely agree. Aikido. Acupuncture. Yeah. <laughs> No, but Justin, be fair. Be fair. Let's 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 just look at one of these great little nuggets of his writing. This is the man's man, and I'm the cupcake. <laughs> Here we go, man. <laughs> All right, I can't. I, we cannot handle any of this anymore. Let's talk about where that desire to cross that cavernous gulf from acting to music came from. An L.A. Times article. In 2005, reads, My mama died two years ago. And before she did, she said, Son, you got a lot of songs. Put them out. People like them. Oh, my God. I like that that was his mom's last words. She she didn't want to say anything about their relationship or I love you or anything. She's like, Son, it's very important that I comment on your music. Share it with the world. Like, what? It's not like I'm proud of you or your dad says hi or go raise that kid in Japan that's 37 years old at this point. Okay, so the review goes on to say, Sagal grew up in a Detroit area neighborhood full of people who had migrated from the South, bringing blues music with them. Remember, guys, he grew up in Lansing. He learned guitar from some of them and studied such luminaries as Albert Collins, Clarence Gatormouth Brown, and Lightning Hopkins. Of course, uh, Lansing, Michigan, old 42 mile. <laughs> yeah, 42 miles away or whatever. Again, none, of this, none of this happened. And he also moved as a child. Even when acting became his career focus, he continued with music, playing alongside figures as Brown and B.B. King and exploring other directions during stays in Jamaica, Africa, and India. Ugh. I like how the, the narrative expands here. Now he's playing on stage with B.B. King. I don't know if there's any evidence of that ever happening outside of like randomly him walking on stage during a concert and like B.B. King humoring him. But it's not like B.B. King took Steven Seagal on tour or anything like that. Then there's the Jamaica thing, which is nothing. And then then it just throws in Africa and India. Like Africa and India come out of nowhere. Like the entire African continent, the entire Indian continent. But it's just, it's it, when someone says like Jamaica, Africa, India, the only thing those diverse places have in common is just like not being white. It's like this guy just doesn't want to be white. He does not want to be a regular white guy, right? So he's just like linking himself to sort of just like anything brown in this. It's like, are you Africa, India, Jamaica, or is it the poor black people from the South and Detroit? It's like, which, you know, which group of people are you? What's also good about this is it shows how much bad reporting was done for someone to just uncritically repeat that he was raised in Detroit playing blues guitar when that was verifiably not true. Exactly. I think my least favorite quote is actually what he says this. I came up in Detroit and there was a lot of blues. I didn't learn blues from a fucking record. I learned it from the front porch, which, you know, unless you're in the movie The Jerk, you're not going to learn music from your front porch. <laughs> I like this part of Detroit, too, because it's just like it's just this part of the 60s where just like Motown doesn't exist in Detroit. It's just the Mississippi Delta. <laughs> yeah, everyone's just howling wolf on their porch. Nobody's listening to Smokey Robinson in Detroit in Steven Seagal's version of like the 60s. It's awful. It's just this is probably my least. This is this is actually. The thing I think that makes him the most quintessential race hustler is taking on an entire education of music in a way that actual people from that culture used to consume music. 
Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it's very much uh, linking his identity to like African American identity in ways that is dishonest. It's what it's what people call being a culture vulture. I don't know what color I am, but I know one thing. In the blues, like I said, there was no color, but also I was the only one that wasn't black that I knew that played exactly like them because I was raised with them. I didn't learn from a record. I played with my fingers, you know? And then who who all the other white boys that play with their fingers, you know? And if they do, it's, you know... It's something that, that is maybe just starting to do with some people, but most people don't play with their fingers. They play with the pick. And I play with my fingers because I saw Gabe Mount Brown play like this, Albert Collins play like this, Albert oh, play like this. And geez. those are the guys that I was lucky enough to get to sit with and watch and play with. Those were my teachers. Those were my mentors. I'm not special. After that clip ended, he actually caught the Holy Ghost and ran around the room rolling. <laughs> I don't know what color I is, but uh, <laughs> it's like I like it. I like it when like Steven Seagal tries to talk like a black guy. It's just Amos and Andy. <laughs> well, hello there. I learned uh, the guitar from a uh, good amount brown. <laughs> Is all this air in his cheeks all of a sudden? <laughs> yeah, it's so bad. So offensive. I like that I don't know what color I am. Like that that you know, that's the race hustling right there. He actually does attempt to like very much just like change his racial identity in that in that second there. <sighs> that's like code switch and a half. It's also like super bold because like black people don't really like Steven Seagal like that. Like there are honorary black people, but like it's like Eminem. It's not Steven Seagal. You know, if if we ever had like the real Dave Chappelle racial draft, Steven Seagal on the black draft list would be probably nine hundred thousandth place, maybe. I think the Asians would have traded him to the whites for Eminem yeah. or something, or for or for like Brandon Lee or something. I, I would like say that. the blues guitar probably ruined any goodwill with black people that. He may have had <laughs> having him attempt to sing the blues. They're like, all right, that, that's enough. All right. Well, we really didn't want to do this, folks. We didn't want to be doing three parts on Steven Seagal, but it's not our fault. It's his fault. It is his fault we got here. So next week, we're going to wrap up our series on Seagal. Then we'll move on with another race hustler as we slog through <laughs> these fraudsters. <laughs> Oh, man. At Justin underscore Williams underscore comedy on Instagram. You can find him on Facebook as well. I'm at Cena now. Make sure you hit us up on our Discord. As always, Fraudsters is a production of Zero Cool Media and the Last Podcast Network. Hazel Bryan produced this episode. Ian Brannon is our editor. Our associate producer is Anna Laranaga. Emily Fusco is our researcher. Our legal intern is Greg Fingerhut. Our theme music is by Simon Tafik. And some music in this episode was composed by Chris Olson. Big thanks to Professor Bobby Ferrazza from Oberlin College. See you next week.